I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Before we begin, I want to let you know that this episode contains descriptions of abuse. The content may be distressing for some listeners. Please take care. Ray, do you know what this is? This is a mouth bowl. Mouth bowls are being made by people all over the world for thousands of years. It's one of the oldest musical instruments in the whole world. Let's know what this sounds like. For a lot of people, this is their first introduction to Buffy St. Marie, here on Sesame Street. It's a classic Sesame Street exterior shot. Buffy sits on the stoop of what looks like a New York City brownstone, playing a mouth bow and singing her song Cripple Creek. She harmonizes with a Muppet, Fred the Wonder Horse. They bounce in time to the song, making eye contact. Can you make eye contact with a Muppet? Buffy looks into the camera and smiles, almost like she's going to laugh. And while it's all endlessly adorable and entertaining, there's a lot more at play here. Buffy's making history. And it wasn't just one generation who was watching. It was little kids and their big brothers and sisters and their caregivers and their parents and their grandparents who happened to be watching Sesame Street. And I was the only Indigenous person highly visible in those times. Starting in the earliest days of Sesame Street in the late 60s, celebrities would make guest appearances on the show. People like Johnny Cash, Carol Burnett, Nina Simone, even the New York Knicks. They'd do a scene, help teach the alphabet, or practice counting. And in the mid-70s, the producers of Sesame Street call it Buffy. The phone rang one day and they said, do you want to come and, you know, be like Stevie Wonder and count from one to ten, say the alphabet? And I said, no. <laughs> I wasn't going to fly all the way to New York to say the alphabet. <laughs> Buffy questions the producers. She asks them if they've ever done any Indigenous programming. They hadn't. So they come back with a different offer. They ask her to come on the show as a semi-regular cast member and they want her to contribute story ideas. In 1975, Buffy makes her Sesame Street debut. And for the next five years, she was a regular in living rooms across North America, talking about indigenous languages and cultures, and of course, singing. Buffy being on TV like this, educating about our existence. It kind of cuts right through me. As an Indigenous person, if you're fortunate enough to have a platform, a place where you feel like you can actually reach people, to talk to them and be heard, to maybe try and create some small space for just being Indigenous, 
It's massive. It's what I try to do. What so many of us are trying to do. And Buffy had been carving this space out, had been sticking her neck out, long before her appearances on Sesame Street. And it meant that she was being watched, not just by kids, but by the government. If you're Indigenous, you know it. You feel it. The government is always watching. I mean, I have an Indian status card. I have a number assigned to my indigeneity. Speaking publicly, kind of like I am right now, it makes me nervous. Have I said too much? Am I pissing the wrong people off? Buffy had to worry about this too. She had to worry about the government coming for her. I'm Phelan Johnson, and this is Buffy. First, I thought, well, uh, my concert audiences are full. I'm being played on the radio. Amazing. I'm a singer. And all of a sudden, my radio play stopped. I've been with three major record companies who are all each in their turn ecstatic about um, having me on their label. And each, in turn, has told me, Buffy, we don't know what this is, but we have never met such resistance in airplay. I didn't realize what it was. I thought that I had just kind of, you know, singers come and go. And I thought probably that, you know, people just had heard enough of me. Buffy often talks about being blacklisted in the early days of her career. And I gotta be honest, I've been having a hard time wrapping my head around the details, around what exactly blacklisting is. It's a slippery term. There's no, like, blacklisting act, no set of parameters of what equals blacklisting. It's not like there's, you know, U.S. government statute, you know, 35CA subsection 20 blacklisting. You know, there isn't anything like that. It's more insidious. This is Aaron Leonard. He's written a lot about state suppression and music. I called him up because he knows a lot more about blacklisting than I do. And Buffy shows up in the pages of his upcoming book, Whole World in an Uproar, Music, Rebellion, and Repression in 1955 to 1972. I attempt to show how systemic repression was uh, something most of the uh, major artists of the 60s uh, confronted. Artists have a huge voice. They can reach millions of people. They're not like just some politically awakened person handing out leaflets down on Main Street. You know, artists have a huge forum. So obviously the the main way to curtail that is to keep them off, you know, major mass media. So that's where you see uh, the efficacy of the, the blacklisting. Blacklisting of artists in the U.S. is nothing new. There was the Hollywood blacklist at the start of the Cold War when anti-communist paranoia swept America. Anyone suspected of having ties to communism was watched. Hundreds of artists were denied work. Careers were destroyed. The government framed it as a way to keep citizens safe, to protect the country against so-called un-American activities. In the 60s, things shifted. Instead of fear of communists, it became fear of anti-war sentiment or civil rights. And because blacklisting is so insidious, Because it isn't official. Sometimes the proof is hard to point to. 
and the stories get lost. Gordon Lightfoot, he does this song Black Day in July about the Detroit riots in 1967. And he releases it in 1968, right around the time Martin Luther King is assassinated and there, there are riots throughout the U.S. And the U.S. radio stations just refuse to play it. Most people in the U.S. don't even know this song exists. Another famously blacklisted artist was Eartha Kitt, the singer and actress known for her sultry voice and her portrayal of Catwoman. How can Batgirl be the best anything when Catwoman is around? Oh. So, in 1968, when Eartha was at the height of her career, she was invited to attend a White House luncheon hosted by President Lyndon Johnson's wife, a.k.a. Lady Bird Johnson. Protests against the Vietnam War were sweeping the country. And at this luncheon, in front of a room full of polite ladies with coiffed hairdos, Eartha spoke out against the war. And after that, she was almost unhirable in the United States for nearly a decade. Remember Universal Soldier? Buffy's anti-war song that she wrote in response to the Vietnam War? I hit a social climate that almost put an end to my career before it started because uh, I wrote a song called The Universal Soldier, which automatically um, categorized me as a person with something to say in a time when you weren't supposed to say anything. For instance, the government, the United States government, was saying that there was no war in Vietnam, and yet my song, Universal Soldier, was being picked up as an anthem for the 60s uh, peace movement. And this meant that I was definitely not going to be allowed to be played on certain radio stations or invited onto certain television stations. Universal Soldier, would some radio say, don't play this. It's putting bad ideas into people's heads. We are drafting young men to send them to Vietnam, and we don't need them to listen to this. Would a radio personality uh, decide against playing it on that basis alone? Sure. Uh, would somebody intervene to do that? I, I could certainly conceive of that. A friendly phone call, a cocktail conversation, you know, more insidious ways than just, you know, we're going to put out a press release, you can't play this song. So what happened was uh, a radio broadcaster told me that he had a letter from the uh, Lyndon Johnson White House commending him for suppressing my music, which along with certain others deserve to be suppressed. We tried to track down this old letter, but we weren't able to find it. We do know that President Johnson had friends in the media and that he sometimes leaned on those relationships. Aaron has found examples of Johnson literally calling radio and TV stations to get stuff taken off the air. When Buffy St. Marie says she's had reports of the president intervening to try to blacklist her, you know, I, I find that credible. Unfortunately, there isn't the kind of intensive rich trail that I would like to find, but there's enough there to uh, establish that, you know, what she was being told was legitimate, and I suspect there's more there than meets the eye. Blacklisting is only one part of the story. There were other forces at work here. The FBI had many targets over the years. A lot of musicians had files on them. Elvis, John Lennon, Pete Seeger, Jimi Hendrix, Johnny Cash, Jim Morrison, Frank Sinatra, Miriam McCaba, Dave Van Ronk, just to name a few. We know that there was surveillance of indigenous rights leaders, just like there was surveillance of civil rights mobilizers. 
and we've heard about the FBI file on Buffy. We requested it, but weren't able to obtain it. But Buffy's seen it. It's redacted. That means that it's crossed out um, in Magic Marker, so you can't find out who it was who was tailing you. Or who. So anyway, my FBI files show absolutely nothing except that I never did anything to break the law, um, that I was being surveilled, that I was being followed around, that I went here and there. The presence of her file, which suggests at some point they were interested in her to the degree that they opened a file, they gave it a code name, they assigned an agent, they typed up reports. Um, so they felt she was a person of interest and uh, establishing that people in the highest uh, echelons of the U.S. government might well have intervened to uh, you know, limit the kind of exposure she had. There's this old Chinese uh, folk saying is, uh, you know, it's like lifting a rock only to drop it on your own feet. I mean, I, to the degree you would try to suppress someone like Buffy St. Marie would be lifting that rock only to drop it on your own feet. The fact that we're even having this conversation, I think is exemplary of that, you know, that they would try to silence somebody who's advocating essentially truth. The fact that she made that career and still continues to say what's on her mind is uh, indicative of who won and who didn't. And in 1975, Buffy pops up in Technicolor on mainstream TV, on television sets around the globe, on Sesame Street. Hey, Buffy. Madam Maria? Nothing, it's just that I'm not Indian, you know, except for maybe some Taino. I feel like I'm intruding. Oh, why's that? Here's Buffy hanging out in Taos Pueblo in New Mexico with Big Bird and Sesame Street character Maria. Well, I feel like I've just come into somebody's house without being invited, you know, not even knocking on the door. I'm afraid I might do or say something that might hurt somebody's feelings. Oh, but you're such a nice person. I don't think you should worry about that. <laughs> well, you don't have to worry about it. These are your own people. But, well, wait but a I... minute. Wait, wait now. See, I'm an Indian, but... But I'm a Cree Indian, see, from way up in Canada. And these people are Taos Pueblo Indians. And, and, well, see, there's about 300 different kinds of Indians. And we all have our own languages and our own ways and our own customs, and we're quite different. And, like, see, in, in my tribe, in the wintertime, we live in wood houses. And, and then in the summer, we live in teepees. But not in Pueblos like this. I've never seen anything like this. Eh? So I'm a visitor here, just like you are. It's such a short exchange. But in it, Buffy's teaching so much about the difference in our nations, the diversity of indigenous people. We aren't all the same. That might sound obvious, but even today we are conflated into some pan-indigenous identity. And Buffy on Sesame Street was, for a lot of people, the first time that they'd learn about indigenous people from an indigenous person. When I talk to other indigenous people about seeing Buffy on the show, a lot of them remember it going something like this. TV is turned on. Indigenous parent sees Buffy. Parent yells, come watch, there's an Indian on TV. It sounds funny, I know, but there's something so powerful in seeing yourself reflected back to you. It somehow legitimizes our existence. I still yell out when I see an Indigenous person on TV or in a movie. And I don't really know what that means in terms of how far we've come. I kind of long for the day when I won't notice at all. 
So back in the 70s, Buffy on Sesame Street, she was making us real to so many people for the first time. In a lot of ways, this time in Buffy's life seems idyllic. She's on Sesame Street. She's recently gotten married. And she gets some news. I had been on Sesame Street for about six months, and I found out, oh, I'm going to have a baby. Buffy's worried that this will mean the end of her time on the show. A pregnant woman on TV wasn't common in the 70s. But the producers see this as an opportunity, as a way to talk about family on the show. So they invite her new husband, Sheldon Wolfchild, and soon their baby Cody to join the show. And in 1977, Buffy makes history again. What you doing, Buffy? I'm feeding the baby. See, he's drinking milk from my breast. Oh, that's a funny way to feed a baby. Well, lots of mothers feed their babies this way. Not all mothers, but lots of mothers do. This is the first time that breastfeeding was shown on TV. Oh. And he likes it because it's nice and warm and sweet and natural. And it's good for him. And I get to hug him when I do it, see? Oh. A curious big bird sits in his nest, gazing down at Buffy as she feeds baby Cody. And as he gets older, he'll need more and more different kinds of food to eat. But for right now, this is just fine. You know, that's nice. In other episodes, Buffy sings songs about the phases of the moon, teaches the count to count in Cree, and she even invites Big Bird and the gang to hop on a plane to Hawaii. Buffy's been calling Hawaii home for a few years now. She's got a farm there, in the mountains. And the Sesame Street gang visits her. They learn about luau's, Oscar the Grouch hangs out in her teepee. His Hawaii very far, very far from Sesame Street. Buffy's on Sesame Street for six years, and she might have stayed longer, but President Reagan cut the budget for public broadcasting, and Sesame Street could no longer afford her travel from Hawaii to their studio in New York. In 1981, her time on Sesame Street ends. That same year, Sheldon and her split up. The relationship had become strained, and, like any breakup, there was more than one factor. Where to live was one of them. Buffy loved being in Hawaii, felt at home there, but Sheldon was a Vietnam War vet, and the tropical similarities were tough for him. Eventually, he leaves, so Buffy is a single mom in Hawaii. And pretty soon, Someone's going to show up on her doorstep who will help her get one of her biggest accolades. But it's a relationship that's going to put Buffy in serious danger. This all started in museums and galleries. Now it's in classrooms in country towns. This should not be here a human being in a box. This is the stuff of empires. There is a great betrayal. We're not slaves, we're African. It's the stuff the British stole. I just don't believe that. It just does not stand up. From ABC Australia and CBC Podcasts, six brand new podcast episodes for free worldwide, available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts.
Buffy settles into her post-Sesame Street life in Hawaii with Cody. She tends to her farm, writes, and plays the odd show here and there. And then one day, her phone rings. It's a producer she worked with years earlier, asking if he can come see her. His name is Jack Nietzsche. So Jack Nietzsche was a musician and a, a brilliant musician by all accounts. This is Andrea Warner. She wrote the authorized biography on Buffy. She's also a friend of hers. And she's been filling in some details for me about Buffy's relationship with Jack. Details that are sometimes painful. His mentor was Phil Spector. A lot of people know what Phil Spector's reputation was, which is genius, but not a cool dude who treated women well and also had a lot of sort of like violent tendencies and ended up with him being convicted of murder. So this is this is Jack Nietzsche's mentor. Jack had worked with acts like The Rolling Stones and Ike and Tina Turner. He'd gotten interested in Buffy years earlier after seeing a photo of her in a magazine. There was a picture of me, a very flattering picture of me in Cashbox magazine and Jack Nietzsche fell in love with it. He had begged her record label to let him produce one of her records. And eventually, they'd said yes. He was just an incredible, incredible musician. And he was just plain talented. I had been a philosophy major, and I had to write papers on Friedrich Nietzsche. And as a philosopher, I was pretty impressed with the name. So when I first met Jack, he told me yes. He said, yeah, Friedrich Nietzsche was my dad's uncle. Yes, insanity runs in the family. Yes, it does. Nothing that I say about Jack is anything that he wouldn't have said out loud himself. He's probably the most honest person I've ever met. He could also be full of doo-doo, you know, like any of us can be. But he was honest about himself. He knew that he had serious mental problems for which he apologized all the time. Jack and Buffy had begun producing her album, She Used to Want to Be a Ballerina. But working together had been challenging. Jack comes in and it is not a good working relationship in the studio. Like, he is kind of controlling and is a bit miserable. You know, they just, they just did not get on well together and the record didn't do very well either. I totally didn't want to see anything more of him. So we lost touch for many, many years. We didn't see each other. Then when Jack was scoring the movie, An Officer and a Gentleman, and he couldn't come up with the theme song and he called me up and he said, hi, remember me? <laughs> So when Jack calls Buffy up in Hawaii, he tells her how he struggled since he last saw her, that he's battled drug and alcohol addiction. But he tells her he's clean and sober now, that he's doing well. Jack's been working in Hollywood on movies like The Exorcist and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And he needs Buffy's help. He needs a melody for the movie he's working on, An Officer and a Gentleman, starring a very young Richard Gere. Jack went to Hawaii went to her home. She had had this sort of melody that she'd been playing with for a little bit that she thought could work. And she played it for him and and he really liked it. And it becomes the song Up Where We Belong, sung by Joe Cocker and Jennifer Warnes. The 
Love Lift Us Up Where We Belong, is my melody. This song is huge. It just blew up. It just blew up. The song becomes a number one billboard hit in the U.S. It sells over two million copies. Meanwhile, Buffy and Jack's working relationship turns romantic. He was back in L.A., she was in Hawaii. They kind of had a little bit of a long-distance thing, but she didn't think it was that serious. But then Jack proposes. Buffy hesitates at first, but Jack gets really disappointed, and she ends up saying yes. The thing is, like, it hadn't... It hadn't gotten bad yet, really, when she accepted the marriage proposal. The wedding is this small ceremony in L.A., just Buffy's son Cody and a handful of people. But cracks in the relationship are already starting to show. Even on the day of the wedding, she made eye contact with Cody during the ceremony, and Jack was furious that she had made eye contact with Cody and wasn't just, like, gazing into his eyes the whole time. Things don't get much better after the wedding. It turns out that Jack isn't clean like Buffy thought, like he told her. He's still using drugs, still drinking. And the years before Jack showed up on Buffy's doorstep, well, he hadn't exactly been forthcoming about that either. He had had some very public, ugly fallings out with a lot of his sort of, like, musical pals like Neil Young and stuff like that. He had also been in a relationship with an actress. That relationship ended, and then he violently assaulted her. Like, the details of the assault are are honestly truly heinous. There were a lot of things Buffy didn't know about Jack. You know, she wasn't really, like, checked into what was going on in Hollywood. She didn't know about the assaults. And all she knew is that this man who is a musical genius is back in her life. He believes that she is also a musical genius. And he is promising all kinds of things that he had missed out on being a dad to his kid and... She had, you know, a son, Cody, and, you know, this was a chance for him to, like, have a family, you know? And um, it, I guess, sounded okay. A lot of Jack's past wouldn't come to Buffy's attention for years. But the fact that he was still using drugs, still addicted, that was hard for him to hide. I realized one day that I was married to somebody who had serious problems. I had not understood that Jack was also a heroin addict. He was still an alcoholic. Buffy and Cody leave their home in Hawaii and move to L.A. so Jack can go into a rehab program. While Jack is working to get better, Buffy keeps working with him on music. But he's controlling, and Buffy's music gets pushed to the background. I realized that I had given up my career by marrying Jack. When a woman, little by little, minute by minute, day by day, winds up on a lower and lower position in the 52-card deck, pretty soon you're not the same person. Uh, so I wound up in a position where probably 80% of myself was just um, just put in a suitcase and put in the closet for a while. 
if you're a woman being abused by a man in any way, you just get out of there. You got no right to do that. And even though I knew those things, I felt as though my spiritual investment in helping this other person who could be funny as heck, who could be very generous and very nice, I thought that I could hang in there one more day. And that's kind of the way that I proceeded. I thought that I was helping him to be a better person, which could help me be a better person. But you know what? I was making a mistake. He kind of turned me into his secretary. I became the one who was numbering pages and putting his name on it and doing all of the grunt work. He was not interested in her being a star. She really wasn't, quote unquote, like allowed to work. She wasn't really like free to make records. She did do some work with Jack. She would sing backup or she would contribute to the compositions and like the arrangements. But like, you know, she wasn't given credit. That was sort of an expectation of her role as his wife. He really wanted to exert control over her. He kept sort of isolating her further, not just like business-wise or creatively, but like from her friend circle as well, you know, just getting, getting her smaller and smaller. And he, I mean, he would yell and scream at her all the time and call her names and just be generally atrocious and threatening. Years and years went by like this. Buffy wasn't recording her own music, but she was still writing some, secretly. And even when she did collaborate with Jack, he'd try to hide her role, like with Up Where We Belong. I gave him the song. He didn't tell the uh, movie company that I had written it. He had not told them that. (laughs) So that became an issue for a while. Eventually, Jack fesses up. He tells the movie company that Buffy had written the melody. So when the song is nominated for an Academy Award, her name is on the ballot, too. The nominees for Best Original Song are Eye of the Tiger. Music it's 1983. Olivia Newton-John is presenting the Oscar for Best Original Song. And in the audience that night, wearing a fuchsia sequin dress, is Buffy. She's sitting next to Jack. He's in a tux and wearing these large tinted glasses. Uh-huh. The winners are Jack Nietzsche, Buffy St. Marie, and Will Jennings. A spotlight follows Buffy and Jack as they make their way to the stage. Jack's hand is on her shoulder. Buffy kisses Olivia Newton-John on the cheek as she's handed her Oscar. She has feathers in her hair. Her dress catches the light. She sparkles. There's so many people to thank. Taylor Hackford. Joel Silk for putting it all together. And the one that makes it all worthwhile, my wife, Buffy. <laughs> Thank you for me, too. Jack stands so close to Buffy as she starts to give her speech that the feathers in her hair brush against his cheek. My mom, my little boy, Cody, and most of all, my husband, Jack Nietzsche, who gave me the chance to be a part of Opposition and Gentlemen. Thank you very much. Buffy became the first Indigenous person ever to win an Oscar. But behind the scenes that night in 1983, things were tense. It was, by all accounts, 
a really rough night. Like it was a really good night, but it was also a very rough night. Jack was particularly awful on the ride there. Like he was abusive and, you know, yelling and screaming. Like it was, it was just, it was a really ugly car ride. He would react with violence to things that went off in his own head. You know, he was a rageaholic um, and he had certain mental problems. But when you're dealing with um, a family member who's dealing with mental illness, it's very tricky, you know. It causes um, doubts in yourself. After the Oscars, things with Jack are bad. And Buffy starts to worry about her son Cody's safety. His behavior towards Cody was escalating in really, like, ugly ways, it seemed. Like, she couldn't stand the way that he was getting sort of, like, more bullying towards Cody and um, more unpredictable. Sometimes you have to leave a tough situation, even if you wish you could stay longer for someone else. Sometimes you have to get out, and I had a four-year-old. And then one night, things get worse. I was asleep one night, and he woke me up. And he told me that he had just skin popped me, which means that he had taken a little teeny tiny needle full of, you know, uh, heroin and popped it just barely under my skin, which is not like sticking a needle into somebody's muscle or somebody's vein. He said, you're going to love it. And it was just the most horror. It was just horror for me to have had this happen at night when I was asleep. I didn't even feel it. And to wake up with that horror, assault, and how dare you. When I realized that I was going to leave, I did a lot of finding out. I didn't just leave because now I'm mad. Now I'm going to leave you. It wasn't like that. Uh Uh-uh. If you're going to get out, you have to figure out how to get out safely. And that might involve more than one person. And you might have to be very careful about how you do that. Buffy had been making a plan with her best friend, Kaylee. She said, you know, it's time to leave. I got to leave him now. And so she packed little suitcases in secret. I think she hid them in Cody's room. And then at four in the morning, one night, Kaylee drove up to the house, waited outside. And Buffy went and got her suitcases. She got Cody. They sort of crept out of the house. I remember Cody waking up, you know, my friend Kaylee was driving me to the airport and Cody was um, in my lap and I remember he woke up and he said, where are we going, Mom? I said, we're going home, Cody. And he said, to Hawaii? And I said, yes. So it was wonderful. It was wonderful. I've never looked back. I, I just became myself again. All those years with Jack, Buffy never stopped creating, quietly writing songs and journals hidden from him. It had been 16 years since her last album. If she was going to do it again, she was going to do it her way. We sent all my MIDI files, all the musical files, uh, over the phone lines via CompuServe. It would take hours and hours and hours, sometimes overnight, to send files. She began working on something totally different on an album that would be the first of its kind. An album that would change how music is made. 
That's on the next episode of Buffy. Buffy is written and produced by me, Phelan Johnson, with our showrunner, Zoe Tennant, and our producer, Eunice Kim. Additional producing from Leah Simone Bowen. Yvette Nolan is our story consultant. Editing and sound design by Mira Burtwin-Tonic and Nigel Irwin. Additional story editing by Mira Burtwin-Tonic. Our theme music is by Nigel Irwin. Roshni Nair is our digital producer. Tanya Springer is our senior producer. And Arif Narani is the director of CBC Podcasts. Special thanks to Jeff Turner, Cecil Fernandez, Jason Paris, Austin Pomeroy, Kate Zeman, Keith Hart, and Wendy Gillis, and to Andrea Warner and Blair Stonechild for their biographies of Buffy. If you've been enjoying our podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Please take some time to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.